0: Well, you might remember that last week we got to the main part of, uh, well, actually to the conclusion of John's Gospel. John's Gospel seemed to conclude with these words at the end of chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It certainly sounds like an emphatic conclusion to the end of John's Gospel. You kind of roll the credits, then we're done. But then there's more. There's John chapter 21. So what's going on? And I think more importantly, we should ask why. Why do we have this epilogue at the end of John's Gospel? There are probably some very good literary reasons why we would expect John's Gospel to finish with an epilogue because, after all, it began with a prologue, didn't it? Do you remember that very well-known section in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and so on. So if there's a prologue, surely there'd be an epilogue. That's not unexpected. The Bible likes bookends, right? We know that. But there doesn't seem to be any correlation between the prologue and the epilogue. It's just a fishing story, you would think. So why that? Um, it's another one of those signs, perhaps. We've heard that there are so many signs that Jesus did, but they won't all fit in one book. And so here's perhaps just another example of a sign that Jesus did, the big catch of fish. Another possible reason, perhaps, to put in an, the epilogue. It's also true that as we look at the epilogue, we get a little bit more insight into the character of some of the apostles, particularly Peter. Uh, And and you can imagine that uh, Christians in the early church would know the great Apostle Peter as their, their wonderful leader or one of their many wonderful leaders. But they would be asking, well, hang on a minute, the last thing I really heard about Peter was on the night of Jesus' trial and before his crucifixion, there he was denying Jesus, denying that he even knew Jesus three times over. How did he go from that to a leader of the church? So... This little bit of helpful background information contained in the epilogue, well, that's that's pretty good. There's more character development, a little bit of what happened next, possible reasons to include this epilogue. But I think that there is a much stronger reason, in fact, a much more compelling issue that actually drives the addition of John chapter 21. And no surprises, the reasons tucked into the text itself. We can look at it, we can see it for ourselves. So the first clue is verse 19, where Jesus prophesies the manner of Peter's death. It kind of only makes sense, actually, this prophecy, if you know that Peter has already died. Uh, He was crucified in Rome about 64 AD. Uh, the second clue is in verses 22 to 24. There was this rumour going around that the apostle John would not die until Jesus returned. All the other apostles suffered, were um, horribly uh, persecuted, and died, but somehow John was living on for quite a long time, it seems. Maybe John won't die before Jesus returns, but that rumour is now dispelled and squashed in verse 23 you see it there, Jesus did not say that he wouldn't die, but he only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, verse 24. Have a look at it. Uh, Referring to John, we read this. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. In other words, at the time of writing, John is dead. We know his testimony is true. Who's the we that's writing this? Well, they're probably John's disciples, a group of elders and teachers uh, that John has trained up. Maybe they're on Patmos. More likely, I think they're in Ephesus. And after his death, after John's death, they have put the finishing touches, as it were, on John's testimony, and they have published this gospel for the benefit of the wider church. So why do we have this epilogue? Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's ascended back to heaven. Peter has died. John has died. Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's a problem. A very real question for the early church. And that is, what do we do now? What are we supposed to do? All of our leaders are gone. And here we are, still here, waiting for Jesus to return. What ought we do I'm suggesting that, among others, this is the issue driving our passage in John chapter 21. So let's look a little more carefully now at the passage, see how it unfolds, and you'll see why I think this issue is actually central to uh, its inclusion and to what takes place here. So um, after Jesus' resurrection, it seems that the disciples stayed in Jerusalem for another week or so, allowing for two Sunday resurrection appearances of Jesus uh, to the 12 or 11 in the locked up room. But then following Jesus' instructions, they went up to Galilee for this third uh, appearance and maybe some other appearances as well to his disciples. And then ultimately Jesus returns to heaven from Galilee. And so that's where John chapter 21 picks up this fishing narrative as I'm calling it. Uh, so verse 1, After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So we're up north now. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others were together. first thing that catches our eye, or at least caught my eye, is this list of names. As far as we can tell, only the Galilean locals are listed among the disciples here. There's only eight of them, And not only that, Thomas is named second. In all of the other lists of disciples in the Gospels, the big three are always up front. There's always Peter, James and John, right? But suddenly Thomas has been promoted up the batting order. Why is that? Maybe it reflects his increased stature. Remember what's just happened in the chapter before. Jesus has appeared specifically and personally to Thomas. We showed him his hands and his side. Maybe there's something to do with that. And strangely, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they're just called the sons of Zebedee. That's what you call them if you know their father, Zebedee. It's the locals' term for those two guys. They're at the back end of the list. We, we're not told why that is. It's kind of strange. We're also not told why Peter suddenly decides he wants to go fishing. But this fishing trip fits in with all of the other fishing narratives we've got in the Gospels. It seems to happen a lot that these professional fishermen, remember that's who they are, these are are the expert fishermen in their local waters, they go fishing and catch nothing. Sound familiar? As fishermen, they make great disciples. Um, Maybe Jesus is thinking, I've made you fishers of men, not fishers of fish anymore. Maybe there's a lesson in that for them as well. But they return all the way to shore, almost, and then Jesus says in verse 6, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. This miraculous catch of fish is actually the the trigger, the sign that, ah, it's Jesus who is revealed. And John, of course, is the first one who recognises him and turns To Peter and tells him. And it's actually a pattern. You might have noticed a pattern developing for Jesus' resurrection appearances. Back in chapter 20, you remember that Mary at the empty tomb doesn't recognize Jesus initially. She thinks he's the gardener or someone, but it's only when Jesus speaks her name. She recognises Jesus. Similarly, behind closed doors, the, the 12 or 11 are, are utterly bewildered until Jesus shows them his nail-scarred hands. It's me. Thomas, come and see. It really is Jesus. And so the same sort of revelation experience happens again. Peter doesn't initially recognise Jesus, but then he does. As soon as he does, what does he do? He jumps out of the boat and heads straight for shore. Um, Believing the other guys with the fish. So in verse 7, you see that. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he says to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and he jumped in the water. The other uh, disciples are left with the fish in the boat. They've got to pull it in. Jesus then uh, is, is known to them on the beach. Look what happens again here. It's really, it's quite fascinating. Jesus says them Now, presumably, they've, they've finally got the boat into shore. Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Only a fisherman counts how many fish are there, right? It was 153 fish that day, guys. Um, and it's another sort of minor miracle. The net wasn't torn. Apparently, that's important that we should know. Jesus says to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, what's the point of this narrative? It's an interesting narrative, lots of great detail in it. And apart from the miraculous catch of fish, it's kind of ordinary, right? Some guys go fishing, they gather on the beach and they have breakfast. It seems to me that the very ordinariness of this post-resurrection event tells us something very important. Jesus is familiar. He's physical and he shares breakfast. He goes for a walk along the beach. He, he participates in conversations. The resurrected Jesus engages with his disciples around real events in common ways. There is a relationship here, authentically human, Do you remember, during the Last Supper, Jesus says, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus' disciples know their master's business. And they are called friends. And it got me thinking... I wonder if this very familiar setting doesn't actually help them to prepare for giving their testimony to Jesus in the midst of ordinary, everyday life. Jesus is Lord. He is risen from the dead in the middle of ordinary, everyday life. I think there's more to it than that, although I think that is significant. There is more when Peter finds himself walking along the beach with Jesus in conversation. And in that conversation, there is reconciliation and there is a kind of commissioning. But it all centers on the issue of love. So we're at the heart of the passage now. This is central to everything in John chapter 21. So I'm at verse 15. Read along with me. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter... Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. For each of Peter's denials, do you remember on that night back in the courtyard of the high priest? For each time that Jesus had been denied by Peter, now Jesus provides Peter a way back. Three questions parallel to the denials back in chapter 18. But there's something else that's going on here and there there are some subtle differences that are not immediately apparent to us as we read the English version of the text here. The conversation here between Jesus and Peter contains two different words for love out of the three possible Greek words that would have been available to them to use. And there's a great debate over the nuances, the difference between agape love and philos love. And linguists, fancy people who know language, right? they tell us that agape love is characteristic of God's selfless love, beyond emotion, beyond affection, if you will, while philos is more like brotherly affection, okay, put your arm around brother, love you like a brother, So this word uh, love that we use covers each of those three um, underlying Greek words. and It's an interesting game that gets played, but we've got to be careful. I want you, just stepping aside for a minute, I want you to imagine the frustration that an Eskimo has trying to explain to an Australian about snow. Eskimos have multiple words for snow. And they must get very frustrated trying to explain to us the difference. But What we should learn from this is that actually it's cold outside and it's snowing, so be careful when you go out of the igloo. That's what we need to take away. There is something really obvious happening here. So let's not get too caught up in this game of language and subtleties, but there is something, there must be some distinction between agape and philos here. Peter's three questions that he hears from Jesus actually lower the bar of love Each time. So let's look at it more carefully. The first question that Jesus asks Peter is, comparing your love to that of the other disciples, Peter, do you agape me more than they? And Peter replies, I love you like a brother. You know that I follow you. Jesus asks a second question to Peter. And he asks him, does your love for me have the qualities of agape love? And Peter replies, you know that I love you like a brother. The third question seems to be another concession to Peter. Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? Peter responds, you know that I love you like a brother. So in this conversation, there's actually a coming together, a reconciliation. Peter has to acknowledge that his boast that he made on the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter said, I'm going to die with you, Lord. I will die for you, Lord. Peter, the great boast, that kind of thing that Peter would do, right? And he now has to, and he seems to have learnt the lesson, but he now has to reconcile himself to that. Peter does indeed love Jesus and that is sufficient. No comparisons, no boasting, it is enough that he loves Jesus. And there is now peace between Jesus and Peter. There is no shame, there is no regret, no more dredging up the past. That reconciliation is very, very important, but... Let's not get lost in the details of love here because Jesus has something much more important that he really wants to say to Peter. Let's not get away from the intent of the conversation. What's the conversation really about? Peter, it's time to get on with the job. If you love me, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed them. Peter, you've got an important role to play and your love for me is to find expression in your care for the Christian community, for the church. This is a commissioning conversation. That's at the very heart of this epilogue. This is central to whatever the purpose of this epilogue is. I think it's found here we could conceivably say that what's happening in this conversation between Jesus and Peter is doing the same job that the Great Commission does at the end of Matthew's Gospel. You know, wherever you go, make disciples, baptising them, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. That's the Great Commission. Here is something parallel in John's Gospel. And placed as it is, I think, in this epilogue, I think it's very much intended to reach beyond Peter to, in fact, the whole church, to all Christians. Everyone who reads John's Gospel should be hearing this commission. Our commission is not exactly the same as Peter's. But exactly the same as Peter's love is meant to motivate him. Our love for the Lord Jesus is to drive us in our exercise of whatever part of the commission we need to take up. Each one of us in some way is commissioned as an assistant junior under-shepherd. Jesus' flock. We are meant to look out for each other. We are meant to protect each other, to feed one another on God's word. And the role of junior assistant under-shepherd carries with it great honour. Not because of the quality of the sheep, I'm afraid to say, but because of the status of their owner. Love for Jesus expresses itself in care for his flock, And if you've been a Christian for a while, you might have been tempted in some situations to look around and say, where have all the leaders gone? You know, who's running the joint? Why doesn't someone stand up and, you know, push some buttons and pull levers or whatever it is that leaders do around here? The first readers of John's Gospel might well have been wondering exactly that. Peter's died. John's died. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Who's... Who's going to help us grow in our faith? Who's looking after the little ones who are young in the faith? This epilogue that we're reading provides gentle encouragement at this point. Everything is exactly as Jesus said it would be. Keep calm and get on with the job, seems to me the message here. We could look around us to say, and where's Dixon? Where'd he go? or that older person who first helped me to become a Christian, or that youth leader back in the day who showed me the way, or my favourite author, or some inspirational leader. Where are they? If you're wondering that, maybe now is the time for you to step up, for each one of us to pick up our share of Peter's commissioning, to tend and to feed and to protect the younger followers of Jesus, to disciple them well. If you find yourself at this moment going, oh, that's pretty heavy, Stu, and, and you find yourself inwardly you know, reaching for excuses, uh, well, you know, there's probably people way better qualified than me, right? And um, I, I'm kind of busy. Um, you know, and there's people with more zeal and passion than me. They should do that job, right? I have no doubt that in Jesus' day, In all of Israel, there were many sharper, smarter, and more qualified people other than Peter. But that didn't seem to matter to Jesus. What mattered to Jesus was, do you love me? And are you willing? So if we find ourselves looking around for someone else to do the work of leadership around here, maybe it's time for us to step up. Maybe we should start to look out for Jesus' lambs, for his sheep. At very least, in your prayers, do you pray for the work of the gospel in this place? Do you know some of the people who are doing a great job in youth ministry or running our kids' program? I would love us to welcome people a whole lot better than we do Is that something you could help with? I would love us to serve the wider community in which we live a whole lot better than we do. Is that something you could help us with? It would be great. We might only be junior assistant under-shepherds and the sheep may not be that appealing. But that's not the point. We don't work for the sheep. We work for the owner of the sheep. Well, loving Jesus in that way is not without cost. That was certainly true for Peter. As we look at verses 18 and 19, Jesus says to Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. For Peter, shepherding Jesus' flock would ultimately cost him his life. That's the intent of Jesus' words here: to stretch out your hands and be led where you don't want to go. Is referring to Peter's own crucifixion thirty years later under Emperor Nero in Rome. Tradition has it that Peter was actually crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't want to have the honour of dying in the same way that Jesus died. But even knowing that he would die a martyr's death, Jesus says, Peter, don't focus on that. Instead, even in my absence, follow me. You are my disciple. Imitate me as I show you. Be my disciple. Now, in the face of such a uncomfortable conversation, if I was Peter, I would look for some wriggle room, wouldn't you? I would look at least to divert attention, and very conveniently, John is walking along the beach behind us. What about him? Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved and was following them. This was the one who would leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that? To you, you must follow me. Comparing ourselves to other Christians is never a good idea. What about him? What about her? What about them? That disciple who was so close to you, the one in whom you confided at the Last Supper, the one that gets called the beloved one, that is the one that you love the most, your favourite. But Peter doesn't get a straight answer about what about him instead Jesus says and the language is very emphatic here you must follow me discipleship is not about comparisons it's not about fair it's firstly about loyalty to Jesus not competing not comparing yourself with anyone else I'm a Christian because Jesus has called me to follow him Regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens to anybody else, irrespective of that whether that results in a in a comfortable life for me or a very uncomfortable life for me. And today, now, after the first apostles are long gone, in this time when we're waiting for Jesus to return in His glory, and it kind of seems a little overdue, and yet it's another day closer. We are to have a singular focus on following the Lord Jesus alone. And so at the end of John's Gospel, we know that in his teaching, in his signs, in his actions, Jesus has unveiled the one and only God. He has unveiled him to all who read this book. And we know that Jesus is the unique and supreme son who has won salvation, who has defeated death, all for the purpose that we would believe and that believing that we would have life in his name. And now it's our turn to step up. We have a part to play somehow in feeding and protecting Jesus' flock. It might be in the midst of ordinary, everyday stuff, of work, you know, fishing, uh, making breakfast, maybe walking along the beach. It might be in a small group, or it might be with our younger people, or it might be in the broader community. If we love Jesus, we follow him and we tend his sheep. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the amazing privilege of being called to follow you as your disciple. And we are grateful to you that you have given us a job to do, that we can express our love for you now by looking after your flock in some way. Please give us such grace and your Spirit's help that we would do that well. We ask it in Jesus' name.